Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. How are you? How are you? Yeah, good, good, good. Good, I am, I am good as well. And so uh, excited to be able to meet with you this morning and to consider uh, God's word again together. Take your Bible, please, with that in mind, and, and let's turn to uh, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Acts 20 concludes the uh, Apostle Paul's ministry in the, uh, in the city of Ephesus as it's recorded by Luke. Luke here is the author of Acts. You recall from last week that chapter 19 was all about Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus. And we learned from Paul's example uh, to, to persist in the work of the Lord... Because the word of the Lord will always prevail. And we talked about how the message of Jesus prevails through the witness of his people, through the demonstration of its power, and and it prevails by confronting our own idolatrous hearts. Uh, And so I just would pray that even today as we gather Uh, May the word of the Lord prevail in us again this morning. Chapter 19 was Luke's assessment. Chapter 19 was Luke's assessment of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. While here in chapter 20, we find Paul's own assessment of that season in his life. Last week, we observed what God did through Paul in that city. And this week... As Paul gathers the elders of the Ephesian church, the Ephesian church one last time, we, we, we kind of lean in to hear his own testimony as he reflects on his ministry with them. Here, Paul assesses the past and he anticipates the future while also acknowledging the present reality. In the end... He assures them that to be committed to the gospel of God is to be commended to the God of the gospel. To be committed to the gospel of God is to be commended to the God of the gospel. So I want to read this with you. Acts chapter 20. We're going to go the whole chapter today, beginning at verse 1. After the uproar ceased, now remember that was the riot that took place in chapter 19, this riot in the city of Ephesus. So chapter 20 begins, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and the Asians, uh, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. 
But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the, on the next day, and, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. That'll teach you to not fall asleep in church. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long, a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took away, uh, the youth away alive, and they were not just a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And, and when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. I want to pause there just for a moment. We won't cover this section in detail today. But basically what's happening is, uh, what's happening here is that Paul is taking a kind of farewell tour through the, um, through the churches. He's revisiting the churches he helped establish throughout Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia uh, during his previous missionary expeditions. He, he's also reconnecting with some key uh, ministry partners he met along the way. He wants to encourage and strengthen them in the Lord and, and enjoy their company and talk with them at length one, one more time before heading to Jerusalem and, and ultimately to Rome. And we know from other New Testament passages that, that Paul was also collecting an offering during this time. He was collecting an offering for the church at Jerusalem because the region of Judea was suffering severe famine. So, so Paul is here in Ephesus and, uh, and so they kind of takes what we just read is they're kind of taking this tour up through Macedonia and Achaia and then back through Macedonia and Troas and then down from Troas to Assos and then Mytilene and Chios and Samos. And now they are right here at Miletus. OK, so we're picking it up now in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that had happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for our time again this morning in your word. And I would just pray that you would um, help us to hear your voice and help us to respond accordingly. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So verse 17 finds Paul in the city of Miletus. Miletus is a port city, as you saw on the map, on the southwest coast of modern-day Turkey, and he was hastening toward Jerusalem, but there was, one, there was one last thing to do, one final farewell for the church at Ephesus. So he arranged a meeting with, the, with, with just the leaders of that church, And what follows in the second half here of chapter 20 is a description of what was basically one last leadership retreat with the Ephesian elders. From Miletus, Paul recounted for them his ministry among them, a ministry, you'll notice, a ministry of great compassion and great courage. Paul served with compassion. 
verses 18 through 21 reveal how he had served them humbly as if serving the Lord. He served them publicly in the synagogue and, and in the hall of Tyrannus, and he served them privately from house to house later in verses uh, 33 through 35. We learn how he also served them sacrificially, working hard with his own hands so as to never burden them with, with his financial or material needs. It seems that Paul took his cue from Jesus, for he had gone to Ephesus, Paul did, not to be served, but to serve. They already knew this, of course. They knew it because they saw it and they heard it because Paul lived it in plain view, how he served as one of them, humbly, not not in any way uh, trying to position or posture himself as being better than them. With great compassion, he, he served them through many tears, he said, and through many trials. Now, you remember from last week, Paul's time in Ephesus. If we were to stop in the first half of chapter 19, or even in the whole of chapter 19, you remember that Paul's time in Ephesus was amazingly fruitful. I mean, amazingly fruitful. God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul. The city of Ephesus, and not just Ephesus, but the entire region of Asia was experiencing revival. Even so, we learn now that it was heart-wrenching for Paul at times. It was very difficult. In verse 31, he says, I want you to remember that for three years, I did not cease night and day admonishing everyone with tears. He was driven to tears daily. Driven to tears because the work was hard. Driven to tears because people rejected him and they even plotted against him. Driven to tears because people rejected the gospel. I don't know what drives you to tears. I know some people cry over something as simple as a sappy TV commercial. Other people seem to have their tears on lockdown. Like they just never cry. But this isn't about what makes you cry. It's about what makes you care. It's not about your tears. It's about what tears at your heart. Does your heart break for people who do not know the gospel and therefore remain condemned in their sin and brokenness and estranged from God? 
And does it break deep enough? Does it affect you deep enough to where you care enough to do something about it? Why would Paul put up with so much heartache? From the outside perspective, we would say, what an amazing time of ministry. That must have been a blast to be caught up in that just incredible time where God's power was so rich. And yet from Paul's perspective, though all of that was true, it was heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching, Because yes, although many people did believe, so many others didn't. Paul cared. And he had compassion on them. It was compassion coupled with courage. Notice how Paul served them courageously by always urging them toward repentance and faith. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to zoom in on that word shrink for a moment. I did not shrink from declaring to you. This is more than just being bold Implied here is the temptation to shrink, to withdraw. In other words, what Paul is doing here is is he's admitting that, yes, I battled doubt. Yes, I battled fear. Yes, I battled the temptation to shrink as widely successful as the ministry was. I battled all of those things. But I did not shrink. Instead, I called people to repentance and faith. And I find this so encouraging on so many levels because don't we wrestle with this very same fear, this very same doubt, this very same temptation to shrink? to withdraw, to not say something. Aren't we sometimes tempted to to maybe we'll go so far in the conversation, we'll come up so far, but we've drawn the line the, the line's pretty close if we're honest with ourselves. And we don't really extend the line. The, the line's pretty close. So we'll draw the line. And we'll go up to that line. But to cross over that line, we'd rather take two safe steps back. Aren't we sometimes tempted to shrink and withdraw? I know I am at times. And I have to admit to you, At times, I'm tempted to shrink even here in this context at church during a Sunday morning worship service. 
because I care about what you think. I care about what you think of me. Like everybody else, I want to be accepted. But in the end, what matters most, what's best for me, what's best for you, what's best for everyone else is a call to repentance and faith. When you serve with compassion, it means you care enough to learn people and the needs of their souls. And when you serve with courage, it means you care enough to speak the truth of Jesus into that need. So you might ask yourself, where in my life, where is my life lacking compassion? And, and where am I lacking courage? Some people, they never speak of Jesus because they lack courage. They're too concerned with not hurting feelings or not wanting to offend or, or they don't want to face rejection. On the other hand, other people may have the courage to say something, but they lack compassion. They're willing to speak the truth, but not in humility and weakness, and certainly not with tears. For them, it's more like hand grenade evangelism. It's more like, I'm just going to pull the pin, and what happens, happens. Paul's example, I hope we see this, Paul's example is one of courage, and compassion. And I think we need both. After recounting, with, uh, after recounting the past with them, Paul then uh, went on to anticipate the future, saying, and now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Spirit, and I don't know what's going to happen to me when I get there, except that the Holy Spirit has told me that in every city I go to, there's going to be imprisonment and affliction. I want you to see how Paul is very honest in saying that he does not know every detail of his call to Jerusalem. He, he just knows that he's called and that it's a constraining call from the Holy Spirit and that afflictions await. He doesn't know what his life there will entail. He doesn't know for how long he'll be gone. He doesn't know uh, where he's going to stay. He doesn't know uh, what will become of him when he gets there. He doesn't know any of these details, and yet he answers the call. Paul set sail for Jerusalem on nothing but obedience and faith. And even as uh, we have been reminded this morning so clearly and so pointedly and, uh, is that God will sometimes call you to do something or go somewhere without providing all the details in advance. 
The Bible is full of examples of this, how we're often called to action without knowing the specifics. Because if we knew everything up front, there'd be no need for faith. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we knew everything up front, we'd probably not go. And Paul, not only this, but like with Paul, God sometimes calls you to something that will be very hard and marked with affliction. The only thing Paul knows for sure is that he's to testify to the gospel of God's grace and then the Spirit of God has also told him, oh, and Paul, it's going to be difficult. There's going to be imprisonment. There's going to be a lot of affliction. I know you know this, but I think what the one thing this passage is reminding us of this morning is that a gospel-centered life and thus a gospel-driven ministry always comes with cost. But God's call is clear that we are ministers of the gospel, each one of us in some way. You don't need to wait. Listen to this. Please hear this. You do not need to wait for God to reveal to you that you are to be a minister of the gospel because he has already revealed that to all of us in Scripture. It's very plain. If you have received the gospel, then you are to share it with others. And your life should somehow reflect this. Now, maybe it's not as a vocational minister or pastor As we often assume, gospel ministry comes in so many different shapes and sizes. It may be leading a Bible study with your neighbors. It may be helping displaced refugees settle into new surroundings. It may be volunteering in a prison or or serving wounded veterans or funding these or other ministries. It may not even be outside the home. It may be raising your family in such a way that the gospel of Jesus Christ is given room to flourish in your marriage and with your kids. But it will not be easy. It will not be easy. A gospel-centered life And thus, a gospel-driven ministry is never easy. So if you're looking for convenience, the gospel is not for you. I just want to say that. I want to steer as far away from this gospel-plus mentality. This Jesus-and mentality. Yeah, give me Jesus, and I want this stuff too. I'm just saying to you, I believe the scripture says so clearly to us, If you're looking for convenience, it's not the gospel you want.
But if it's genuine life change you seek. If it's true transformation, if it's a calling to something that matters for all eternity, if it's being in a healthy, unbroken relationship with God, if those things matter to you, the gospel's all you got. That's why Paul can say in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now listen, he's not suggesting that life isn't valuable or precious. That's not what he means. What he's saying is that life is so valuable and it is so precious that he's not going to waste it on things that don't matter. Paul often talked about running the course. Paul used this as a metaphor for life. To the Corinthians, he said, Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Listen, run to get the prize. To the Philippians, he said, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To the Galatians, he talked about proclaiming the gospel in order to make sure that he, he hadn't run in vain. And near the end of his life, he told Timothy uh, with these words that just would make a great epitaph for anyone. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And therein lies the significance of what he was saying to the elders here and those elders of Ephesus as he anticipated what awaited him in the days to come. And so Paul was not so focused on the past or on the future that he neglected the present. At present, he was concerned for the church at Ephesus and for those who had been appointed to serve and oversee that church. And so he says, and and now behold... Uh, the conversation becomes very, very personal here. I know, I know that, that, that none of, a, of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, none of you will see my face again. This is it. I, I, this is it. Paul's final farewell was a charge to take heed of the gospel, to keep watch over their own lives as well as the lives of those in the church. This was their last time together. He knew this, and so he brought them back to the, to the whole counsel of God. I want you to see that phrase there, the whole counsel of God. Now, this can mean, in general, this can mean the whole of Scripture, that we shouldn't just limit ourselves, only those portions that are comfortable or convenient. This is, this is why 
Um, this is why, honestly, this is why. Like, it's this verse is why. This verse God used in very formative ways in my life. This is why I prefer uh, systematic expositional preaching over topical preaching because even though I do give topical sermons on occasion, uh, I believe a systematic approach by which we go through an entire book of the Bible, section by section, I think that keeps us from personal bias. It protects us from picking and choosing only those passages we want to hear and avoiding the passages we probably need to hear. More specifically, though, and this is, this is what I believe Paul is probably saying here in this instance, the whole counsel of God refers to the whole gospel, to the full scope of God's redemptive plan. Created by God, we exist for God. But humanity has chosen self over God, and thus we have fallen from the glory for which we were created. And we've just felt the terrible effects of that fall ever since. Each one of us, all of us, we are born into sin. Our very nature is diseased by it, and like any disease, there, there are consequences. Unless God intervenes, we will die in our sins And we will spend eternity apart from Him, not in heaven, but in hell. But the good news is that God has intervened. God has provided a Savior who rescues us from sin and its dreadful consequence. The Lord Jesus, who bore our sins on the cross and that we might be forgiven and cleansed and made right with God. Jesus lived and died and He he rose from the dead and He lives today to bring new and everlasting life to anyone and everyone who places their trust in Him and follow Him. And He is coming again to right every wrong and restore all things. That's the gospel in brief. And though parts of it may be unpopular or uncomfortable, Paul didn't shrink from them and neither should we. In fact, Paul was innocent of their blood because he declared the whole gospel This phrase, innocent of their blood, there's a lot of depth there. It's not that Paul was saying, so it's not on me. me." He's not trying to get out of anything. Instead, what it is, it's an allusion to uh, Ezekiel 33. In that chapter, Ezekiel is like a watchman over Israel. And it was the watchman's job to alert the city of, of danger. And so the watchman would take uh, his post on the city walls, and, uh, and if he saw the enemy coming and threatening, he would blow the horn. 
and he'd blow the horn to alert the people in the city, hey, you either need to take cover or you've got to prepare for battle because it's about to go down. That's what the watchman was, was to do. If the watchman blew his horn and the people didn't listen and therefore the enemy came and plundered them, that was on them. That was their fault. But if the watchman didn't blow the horn, maybe the watchman fell asleep. Maybe the watchman had conspired with the enemy for whatever reason. If the, off, if the watchman didn't blow the horn and the people then suffered and died, the watchman was held accountable with his own life by his own blood. So Paul is saying, hey, listen, I blew the horn. I blew the horn. I've made known the whole gospel, including the danger of sin and judgment and, and the consequence of failing to repent and believe in Jesus. He made very, very clear what was what, and if they turned a deaf ear, that's on them. Pay, pay careful attention to yourselves, he continues, as he cautions these ministry leaders. He, he knew, of course, Paul knew, just how all-consuming ministry can be or how easily ministers can drop their guard or, or how frequently they fall by the wayside. I'm sure you've heard the statistics that, that, that literally hundreds of pastors leave the ministry each and every month. Some fail morally, of course. Some are terribly depressed. Some are tired of dealing with contentious people or constant criticism. Some are simply feeling they're just wondering if they're making any real difference. Pastors suffer burnout at an amazing rate. Those in ministry sometimes sacrifice the care of their own souls. by trying to care for others. Time alone with God takes a back seat to time for ministry. The planning of Sunday morning worship takes a back seat to worship itself. Participation in church life takes a back seat to life to one's own life or life with one's own family. Ministry which itself is good, of course, can easily become an idol. So it shouldn't surprise us that Paul urges these ministers to to pay close attention to themselves, to be cautious and careful, because those entrusted with spiritual oversight need to be spiritually healthy in order to nurture the spiritual health in others. Pay careful attention to yourselves, he says, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the the church of God. And so here we have Paul moving 
from concern for the elders specifically to concern for the entire congregation. He is concerned for the church because it is God's church. It's God's flock for which God paid a great price. The church belongs to God. The church is very precious to God. So precious that He obtained it with His own blood. The church is so dear to God that Jesus gave His life for it. So dear that the Holy Spirit appoints people to shepherding roles just to ensure appropriate care for the sheep. The sheep need care in large part because the flock will come under attack, according to verses 29 and 30. Fierce wolves will come in to threaten the sheep. And notice how Paul says, even from the inside. Like, even from among you, there will be people who serve like wolves and divide. And destroy. So be alert, Paul tells them. Be vigilant. Be watchful. And granted, granted, Paul is is saying this to those leaders in that church. But I think it also speaks to all non-elders in any church as well. Because the New Testament, the entire New Testament, urges us to pay close attention to ourselves and to look out for one another. Uh, The New Testament is urging us to to make sure that that you have grasp, that you don't, don't, don't lose your grip on the gospel, while at the same time exhorting us to help others not lose their grip either. Ultimately though, God is the care we need. And so in verse 32, Paul commends them to God and to the word of His grace. He did not commend the elders to Himself. He did not commend them to each other. He did not even commend them to the congregation back at Ephesus. He commended them to God and to God's grace. I can only imagine what a relief this must have been for those elders. Paul was passing the torch to them. And I'm sure they felt the weight of that responsibility. 
But the apostle didn't want them to carry that burden in their own strength. And so he bought, brought them back to the basics. He brought them back to grace. He, he brought them to the gospel of grace. He brought them to the God of grace by entrusting them into God's gracious care. It's as if he's saying, it's going to be hard. You will be rejected. There will be wolves. But God is with you. So have the victory. Obviously, this endeared them to him and him to them. Once again, falling to their knees, they prayed together, they wept together, they embraced and kissed Paul, and then they walked to the ship together, and they saw him off. Church, aren't you thankful for grace this morning. I cannot help but think that, that the display of devotion here between Paul and those elders from that church, that that, that, that can and should characterize the relationships in any church, any church, I believe, any church that truly appreciates grace should be driven by it. Any church that truly values God's love should be characterized by that love. For as I said at the start, to be committed to the gospel of God is to be commended to the God of the gospel. Amen? Amen. We do thank you for grace this morning. Oh God, who is sufficient? Who is capable? Who is worthy of such things? Who is adequate for such things? And yet here in your infinite wisdom, you call men and women out from darkness into your light. You call us out from death into life. And then you send us out to bring light and life to others. Please encourage us this week to see ourselves as ministers of the gospel wherever we are, wherever you take us this week, at home, at school, at work, out and about. In a sense, we commend ourselves to you even now. We entrust ourselves to you even now. 
and to the word of grace. May grace, your grace, have its full effect in each one of our lives. Amen.